0: hello please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill this week we journey through the labyrinth of muppets Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos
1: begin.
0: I am Adam Thomas, and uh, someday you'll find me, the Rainbow Connection.
1: And uh, I am Thomas Mariani, and you know, this all just sounds familiar, vaguely familiar. Yeah, <laughs> but welcome everybody to the <laughs> Double Edge Double Bill, in which uh, every week Adam and I cover a good and a bad feature uh, that we picked at the end of the previous episode. That's related to a topic that kind of ties into a recent release. And this week, uh, because Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is coming out on Netflix, uh, which I'm very excited about. Uh, you know, stop motion and all that, and del Toro doing anything, especially given his collaborators, uh, Patrick McKay, who is the guy that did Over the Garden Wall. Like oh, shit. It. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm stoked <laughs> on it, too.
0: I mean, a stop motion, like you said, and also Del Toro. And then now I didn't see I didn't realize that. That sounds pretty cool. You know,
1: uh, we kind of rolled over like what we were going to do to like, coincide with that release because we figured maybe doing another stop motion episode. But um, quite frankly, when we did our last stop motion episode it was so hard to do a bad pick. So we are just kind of like pulling our hair out. And then maybe we figured like another Del Toro episode, we kind of contemplated, but then we kind of narrowed down on this. um, And by we, I mean, I made this executive decision because if you know me, you know, I love everything related to this particular topic because uh, Pinocchio is produced by, along with Netflix, uh, the Henson Company. Uh, So we figured, you know what, let's do a full on like Jim Henson Company episode, um, which we're covering two movies that Jim Henson actually worked on. But we had opened the field to the Henson Company in general because obviously didn't stop when Jim Henson passed away. His uh, son, Brian Henson, has been heading that for the last several years. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting kind of going back to these because, you know, I'll, I'll let you go for a bit, Adam, uh, th- to talk about your sort of history with sort of like that, the Henson productions and stuff like that because I have a lot more to say.
0: What if you let me go first and I talk for like two hours? Well, fucking embarrassed. Um, anyhow. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I grew up with the Henson Company. I grew up with the Muppets and, you know, all that stuff. I, I absolutely love the Muppets. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies growing up was The Great Muppet Caper. Uh, now, I still really like it. Obviously, you know, as I got older, I preferred the original more, but that doesn't mean that Great Muppet Caper isn't good. But yeah, I mean, The Muppets have been a mainstay of since my childhood. And I, I still look forward to you know, checking out the new stuff. Uh, Even that short-lived NBC show, which wasn't very good, but it was still fun to watch. Like, oh my God, it's the Muppets on screen. You know, it's just,
1: yeah, the Muppets are badass,
0: dude. I I fucking love them. Now go ahead and your diatribe. I'm going to take a nap.
1: (laughs) You're going to do your taxes. You're going to do a couple of chores you've been putting off for a bit. Uh, But yeah, um, I can still remember um, one of my first sort of interests in after like I always loved movies since I was a kid but one of the first times I remember learning about sort of the process of filmmaking was picking up a Jim Henson biography when I was like I want to say in third grade And that's when I found out a lot of the stuff about, like, oh, in, like, the Muppet movie, when Kermit's on the log, it's actually Jim Henson, like, underwater in a tank, and all this other stuff, and I was immediately fascinated, so I just dug into all the other, like, Jim Henson sort of stuff. I literally did a report, I think, in fifth grade. About Jim Henson that had me like with a big poster board and everything. So I've been such a massive fan of not just like obviously the Muppet stuff, which I loved ever since I was a very young kid. My dad exposed me to like, you know, the movies and the reruns of the Muppet show and all these other things. It's interesting just considering the fact that my entire life has been post-Henson because Henson obviously died like in 1990. I was born just a couple of years later. But I had such a fascination and connection with him and the Muppet and Henson-adjacent stuff that was coming out around that time in the 90s as well. I think that stuff really gave me my fascination interest, especially in, like, practical effects and the animatronics and, you know, that kind of Muppet stuff. Like, that, all that along with, obviously, the theme parks, which kind of segues into Henson as well, given the Muppet Vision 3D. Attraction over there, and yeah, i just I love the fact that not only was Henson such like a great technical craftsman, but also when you consider all the various different aspects of his job, being like he was a performer where he would like sing as these characters, or like actually you do the puppeteering and all this other stuff, like every single detail where like he would do all that, but also like write and produce and direct so many of these things. It's such a like multifaceted, fascinating, talented person. Jim Henson is like truly a once in like a generation kind of talent that it's, it's such a bummer that we lost him so early and how much you can see people trying to replicate either like what he did directly with like Brian Henson's been trying to do since the nineties. And then eventually what Disney's been trying to do since like the two thousands with the Muppet characters, but even just like on a craft and filmmaking level, like so many people have been trying to like chase back to like that Henson era with like even like modern digital technology and trying to create like new modern like sort of characters in that fashion. We're still just kind of chasing that sort of investment you have in like these fabricated characters that like Henson sort of perfected for me. Even in like lesser projects, projects I'm not as huge on, at the same time the scope and the wonder and just the, the fascination, like it's been very rarely like duplicated or even like gotten close to what Henson did when he was actually working. <clears throat> yeah
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah what he said
0: <laughs> yeah Brian Henson you know still doing it I agree it's not to the same quality maybe as a Jim Henson was but I mean it, he's, still, he's still going strong and then you had you know I think one of the best ever sort of suit puppet performers is Carol Spiney who was fucking great too but yeah the, the art isn't really I mean it's still going but it's not nearly what it once was
1: yeah, and I mean it's it, it's such a thing where like even like uh with like Carol Spinney, he obviously worked with Henson because he had was doing Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch ever since like the late '60s when they started Sesame Street. But yeah, it's it's so fascinating, especially if you like look at sort of the entire span of his career. I would definitely recommend. Uh, there's a YouTuber called Defunct Land who usually deals with like theme park stuff, but he also talks about TV, and he did like a whole sort of mini documentary series about. The Jim Henson that is like incredibly comprehensive, but also very entertaining and fascinating. You just sort of see the arc of his career in particular with how much he was focused on like, oh, I don't have a lot of time in this world and I want to do as much as I can to entertain as many people as possible from like the Sesame Street era. Than entertaining the smallest kids, all the way to as he started, you know, trying to experiment and grow near the end of his career, he was really trying to push it, like, no, puppetry isn't just for kids at the same time. I can make big, elaborate stories that aren't just focused on, like, the ABCs or whatever. He knew that puppetry was, kind of like what we've said previously with, like, animation, it is a medium, not necessarily a genre.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, for sure. And I, I think that's absolutely uh, correct and true. I mean, look at sort of the puppeteer effects and everything that we've seen in horror movies and, and science fiction movies and everything of the, you know, eighties and seventies, eighties, nineties. I mean, I I absolutely agree. It's, it's an art form. It's a medium. It's not just, it's not a genre. Absolutely agree.
1: Yes. And uh, we'll be talking about two, interesting sides of that we'll be talking about the two features we picked at the end of our previous episode uh where uh, we'll first focus on the good pick uh which i had which was the original muppet movie from 1979 and then we'll go into your bad pick adam the highly controversial bad pick of labyrinth i know everybody out there don't, don't throw tomatoes at him yet let him give a chance to explain later in the show <laughs> uh, but we'll get into all that in a bit first though let's focus on the muppet movie now available from Jim Henson Video. Hollywood, the pot of gold at the Rainbow's End. Hey, we're all going to Hollywood. You want to come with us? Hollywood! It's time to grab your pack, stick out your thumb, and hit your ride for the adventure of your life. Hey, wait for me! It's Jim Henson's The Muppet Movie. Moving right along. Foot-loose and fancy-free. There's Fozzie at the wheel. A bear in his natural habitat. A studebaker. Kermit guiding the way. Turn
0: left if you come to a fork in the road. Fork
1: in the road. I don't believe that. And a roadside distraction named Miss Piggy. Wow. Hogging the spotlight. You're a me Now it's all aboard. Everybody on to Hollywood. As the Muppets hit the jackpot. They're the standard
0: rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and Company.
1: And now, Hollywood will never be the same. Stand by, here we go. Now you can own the Muppet movie on video cassette. So, the Muppet movie uh, came out June 22, 1979. Directed, we should note, by uh, a man named James Frawley, uh, who was uh, like British TV director. He had worked with like the Monkeys and stuff like that. And he was brought in to direct this. He's one of the only examples of, like, an outsider directing a Muppet project. Because uh, he kind of... Henson tended to keep, keep things, like, kind of in-house with certain, like, directors. Even if he wasn't directing, he'd have, like, people like Peter Harris, who did a lot of the Muppet show and stuff like that. But they wanted to get Frawley because this was their first experiment with doing, like, a full-on feature film, especially in real locations, with these Muppet characters that weren't, like, on a TV set or, uh, you know, in, like, and a talk show set whenever they bring the Muppets out there. Yeah, the, the Muppet movie is, you know, one of those sort of big, massive pillars of, like, everybody's childhood ever since 1979 where it's just everybody loves this movie. It's sort of considered the pinnacle of the various different Muppet movies. Would you generally agree with Adam that the Muppet movie is, like, the height of the Muppets in cinema?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, there's... The sequels, I'd say at least the second and third one are really great, and they kind of start deteriorating uh, from there. But yeah, the first one is just an absolute perfect movie. It really is a work of art. It's just absolutely a staple of, I'd say, everybody from like you said seventy nine to maybe ninety of their childhood. I mean, it's just it's such just a perfect, perfect movie. I fucking hate it. Zero out of five.
1: (laughs) Wait till he talks about labyrinth, everybody. Uh, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I would generally agree. I think like I rewatched a bunch of the Muppet movies like in prep for this, and what's fascinating is definitely that like I would say, short of the previous Muppet movie we covered, Muppets from Space, I would say there's not like a another terrible theatrical Muppet movie. I think you get, like, varying degrees where it's like, I like, like, the Jason Siegel one or Christmas Carol, which was post-Henson. And even Treasure Island I would stick up for. But um, I think with um, the Muppet movie, I think the thing that crystallizes that makes it sort of the perfect uh, cinematic Muppet movie is the fact that, like, with the other ones, like, even the the only one that Jim directed was The Great Muppet Keeper. That one is so much more focused on, like, gag after gag kind of thing. opposed to like, this one, I think Muppets Take Manhattan has a bit of this, but this one especially does, where, like, you have a lot of those jokes that are very funny, but also there's a lot of time just kind of, like, have these felt characters breathe in the situation that's going on. You have, like, it, it's a movie that's kind of leisurely paced, and it allows, like, you know, at the opening where you have... Kermit just, like, singing that song with the rainbow connection. It is just, like, when you look at what's going on on screen, it's just, like, oh, this frog puppet is singing the song, but he's, like, actually embracing, like, what his hopes are, what his dreams are in the middle of this, like, swampy area, and it's a very slow, delicate, kind of, like, gradual build-up to, like, a close-up of Kermit on this log. And you think of, like, oh, all the technical stuff that's going on there. Like, like, I literally said Jim Henson is underneath that in that water tank doing the puppeteering for Kermit. It's amazing. But, The movie doesn't treat it like that. It just treats it like here is this character living in the moment and trying to like think about where he can go from here and get out of this like little swamp area and get to Hollywood. It's
0: absolutely wonderful. And I mean, the song obviously was nominated for an Oscar and everything, but it is a beautiful song. It's so cute and sweet and sort of sets the tone for Kermit, especially like his personality and what Kermit is. And this is one of those type of movies where like the celebrity cameos are fun. You know, where you're like, oh, look at, oh, look at, oh, they got him, they got him. Where, you know, there's other types of movies where celebrity cameos are just self-grandizing garbage. But, like, this one, it, it, there's so much to love about this movie. Like I said, the celebrity cameos are really fun. The songs are all really good.
1: Credit to Paul Williams and Kenny Asher, who wrote all the songs. Amazing.
0: Paul Williams yeah. Paul is the fucking piano player in Sleezo. Um, <laughs> that
1: illustrious fuzzy bear.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... It's just, the songs are great, the character, all the character interactions are great, there's running gags throughout the whole thing that really work and pay off. It, it's so expertly done for such a silly concept that, you know, it, these random, basically, I mean, puppets all go to Hollywood to become movie stars and create a movie and all this, and you're following this, and it's just, it's such a ridiculous idea. That's what I've always loved the Muppets, that humans treat them as just, it's normal. And they don't, for the most part, uh, you know, there's always occasionally a character who's like, oh my God, what? But it, it, I just love that people just accept it, that, yeah, that's these weird freaking little creatures running around and singing songs and dancing and trying to take meetings with Orson Welles.
1: Well, right. Like, nobody treats it as like an impossibility, but they always treat it as sort of like an annoyance. Like, what the fuck is the frog and the bear doing yeah. here? N- not like, oh my God, what are you doing here? Just like, oh God, they're here. Why? <laughs> Why? We're not inviting you in here.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful, cute, controlled chaos, the whole movie. It's such a, just, masterpiece, and insane that it's just that good. It is that good.
1: Wait, I think it also helps that, like, you mentioned something with, like, you know, the celebrity cameos and all those. I think what helps all of this is the fact that the actual initial shot we get is of, like, uh, Sadler and Mulder going into the studio, and it's like, oh, they're screening this. Like, this whole thing is a fictional movie within the universe of, like, the Muppets that we know. That little detail which is like serves as like a fun sort of like a meta narrative thing also kind of serves like allow you to suspend your disbelief when like we fully break the fourth wall we're just like oh this isn't like the exact true story it's to quote kermit like sort of approximately how the muppets got together (laughs) so it's like oh this is their version of their story and I think that makes it a lot more fun when you do end up getting, like, the very big Breaking the Fourth Wall gags. I think this movie, like, introduced me to, like, aspects like that, like Breaking the Fourth Wall, or to any of these celebrity cast people. Like, I, like, all these cameos, I had no idea who the fuck any of these people were <laughs> when I saw this at, like, five. Like, no way I knew any of these people, but then, like, this is my introduction to so many of these people, like James Coburn, or, like, all the Mel Brooks people, like Mel Brooks himself, Madeline Kahn, Cloris Leachman, Elliot Gould, all these people popping up. Who would you say is your favorite of the celebrity cameos, by the way?
0: Um, if it's not Steve Martin.
1: I mean, yeah, that's kind of a given. I think we would both say Steve Martin, but if there's yeah. a second place, if there's, because you a... can't, you can't beat, like, and just, like, ugh, excellent choice. Yeah, you're right. <laughs>
0: I really like Cloris Leachman. Um, You know, I don't know. Milton Berle's fun. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably Milton Berle if I can't do Steve Martin.
1: I mean, I gotta say, like, it's probably Orson Welles for me because it's such, like... You know,
0: because it's Orson Welles, right. it's it's not just that. It's
1: not... I mean, but even when I was a kid, like, I didn't know who Orson Welles was. I'm just like, who's that big guy? I don't know who that is. But just the way that he looks at the Muppets is very confused for a second and he's just like, Prepare the standard rich and famous contract for Commit the Frog and Company. Like he delivers that with gravitas. And it's like you're you're given a contract of like a fucking bear and a pig and a frog right. and everything else, but he treats it with the utmost seriousness.
0: I know. And I was even I made the joke while watching it, you know, this time with um my wife and daughter. Like I love that this group of freaking you know creatures and animals walk into this guy big like studio head mogul's office and he's superimposed and then he gives them a budget and the rights and all this stuff to make that movie entirely by themselves like there's no other studio involvement in i just think it's so funny
1: well yeah and it has a bit of like a real life element to it because he's playing lou lord who was an approximation of a guy named Lou Grade, who was the guy that gave Henson the ability to make the Muppet Show in England. He was like a big British producer guy, who just was like, you know what? I like what you're doing. You have a full season. You <laughs> gave him twenty two episodes based on like talk show appearances and shit like that. So it's just like, oh, it kind of fits. There's a lot of this sort of like autobiographical stuff even in this as well that like as a Muppet nerd. You kind of get those elements. It feels like it's, at the same time it's the Muppets telling their story, it's Jim Henson telling his story through these characters too. Because it's about like, oh, picking up all these people along the way like he kind of did with like Fozzie Bear Frank Oz or like Richard Hahn Scooter, all these recent Muppet performers that he picked up along the way and, you know, made a part of his crew.
0: Right, exactly. It's just, it's so fucking great. I mean, you know, and also I, I just want to talk to you. My favorite, sort of thing that always has stuck with me ever since I was a little kid and it might be my favorite running joke in movie history is Sweetums. (laughs) Um, I absolutely love it. You know, you want to come with us? We're going to Hollywood, Hollywood. It runs away. You know, it's just, <laughs> wait, I want to go to Hollywood. And the whole movie is chasing him on foot. And then it just pays off at the very end. It's so fucking funny to me. It always has been. And I love the Sweetums costume. I mean, and the head, it's so fucking funny and cute and just works on every level. I, I just, that and animal taking the pill and growing to giant size. Uh, but yeah, that's the thing about this movie, you know, rewatching it today. There's always a gag. There's always something funny happening. Like even when Piggy's imagining her and Kermit together and, you know, they're going through on the boat and all this stuff and he's chasing her through the field and he trips. I think he gets up and run after (laughs) the looks back while he's running to see what he tripped on. Like, it's just, it's so funny. It it just, there's never a dull moment.
1: Also the bit during that fantasy sequence where like, like they're running toward each other and piggy grabs him. And then he's like looking around as he's being dragged. Like, how is this possible? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs)
0: And, and the thing is, it's like, you know, obviously it's documented how you even said it, how they did the log trick and even how they did the bicycle trick with the crane and the invisible like tension wires and all this stuff. But it's still never not, like, mind-blowing to see the the shot of Kermit riding the bike or him on the log or just a lot of the stuff they're able to pull off with this. The fact that, you know, obviously it's a simple thing where the the cars being, you know, pulled out like a trailer. And it is on a trailer, actually. And they cut out the bottom of the car and all the performers are performing from underneath the car. And there's, car like, a little person
1: whatever. basically, like, driving. In the yeah, trailer.
0: right. Exactly. Yeah. And you totally get it. And It, it all makes – but when you watch it, it's just – Nope, Bear is driving that car. Yeah, so especially the
1: shots where it's just like you're on the street and you're seeing them in the actual car. Right. And it's like it's... a shot that would be so casual anywhere else. Like they're treating it as just like any other movie would. Like I think that's the thing that Henson loved doing was like, oh, let me film this thing like an actual movie. It would be like, this feels like a 70s road movie. At the same time, that it feels like a Muppet movie. And whenever they try and do those sort of cheats around or, like, those shots, it's not about, like, look at this. Isn't this fucking cool? Like, I think even The Great Muppet Keeper has a few too many of those kind of sequences where it's, like, hence it kind of shutting off the technical aspects of it. As opposed to here, it feels like him and Frawley are like, no, let's actually shoot this casually. So then you can be amazed, like, that's why everyone was so amazed by, you know, Kermit on the bike. Because they treat casual casually just like, oh, no, he's just entering on the bike. Meanwhile, anyone in the theater is like, how the fuck is that happening? What? <laughs>
0: He's riding a bike, and we don't see the wires. I think you actually hit it on the head there. I think that is what sort of makes this movie and some of the other ones work so well, is that it's treated just like they're actors. Like, it's a dead series. They're actors giving a performance and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's so fucking well done. What a smart way to do it. You like you said, you grow to actually like love these characters and care about what they're doing and, and care about their plight and adventure and sort of the romances and all that stuff. Like you generally get invested in these silly, silly Muppet characters, and it, it's just the that's how you know like there wasn't anybody or has been anybody like a Jim Henson because nobody else has really been able to pull that off as well to where. You know, they're so iconic, these characters, because they're treated dead seriously and because they're treated just like everyday people or however you want to put it. But it's just it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that, you know, you can watch a movie like this and you you care about fucking Gonzo and the chicken.
1: Like, you know you, well, you- Gon- Gonzo's the big element for me where like in this movie like his sort of arc is so fascinating where like we initially meet him with another great example of them kind of working around the sort of like they can't show this so they do like a fun gag with like the two cars like nearly hitting each other like oh my god and then it cuts and it's like Gonzo coming down and it's like oh the cu- <laughs> his truck is on top of their car uh-huh. <laughs> which is so fucking funny but then like later on when he does like the whole balloon thing that's just like in you know in context and any other like kids movie just be like oh this is a fun sequence where like oh no he's caught up in the balloons he's up in the sky and everybody's chasing after him and trying to get him down but then the payoff of that is him like later on with the uh, I'm going to go back there someday song basically being like that was the first time I've ever felt like natural was being up in the sky and I wish I could go back there and it gives us like maybe the saddest song in the whole movie (laughs) it's so sad and beautiful but heartwarming in a way that like no kids movie would ever do today. The minions are going to like stop doing banana shit and just sing like a beautiful tragic song about like wanting to go someplace they've never been to basically.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it, like I said, it's wild, dude. It's fucking wild. It, it, that hey, I okay. Well, I guess that was going to be my next question. What is your, what is your favorite song in the movie?
1: Um, I mean, it, so many stack, stacked on top of each other. Cause like, you know, Rainbow Connection's great. The I'm going to go back there someday. The Moving Right Along is an amazing song as well. Yeah, it is. Had, moving Right Along. yeah, yeah. Dumb, yep, dumb, that's dumb, dumb. Yes. Uh, but um, I think I would have to say I'm going to go back there someday. If nothing else, because, like, in the song, like, something that's, like, not in any of, like, the re- digital or physical releases of it that I love is when Fozzie and Piggy join in. I think it's like one of my favorite sort of like Muppet moments in any of these like movies or TV specials or whatever, where it's like all of them kind of like suddenly, like they all know how this song goes and they're immediately like kind of jumping in with it. And it's such a beautiful, sad, but worthy song that leads into like my favorite scene of the movie which is Kermit talking to himself, which is another, once again, like a weird, like self-reflexive scene that would never be in a kids movie. Of just like, I let them all down, but like I shouldn't have promised them that. And it's like, well, I mean, when you started this, you promised yourself something that you're going to go out there. It's such a beautiful little moment that like mm-hmm. is like speaks to everything. I love about Henson and everything. But um, what about, what's your favorite song?
0: Honestly, probably it would be rainbow connection now, but when I was a kid, and I used to sing this song so much, it would drive my parents and my brothers crazy. But it's Can You Picture That?
1: Yeah, the electric mayhem. We haven't talked much yeah. about <laughs> Yeah,
0: so I crazy. used to sing it all the time. And I would just walk around the house go, Can you picture that? And it would just drive them nuts. Uh, that's probably my favorite.
1: I mean, I get it, because like, that's a great sort of like nonsense song. But that makes no uh. sense whatsoever. But it's like such Not a fun, catchy song, and those characters are so like endearing. Like they were probably like the because like, Animal became such a big thing. But I love that whole Electric Mayhem ensemble. Like Doctor I love the Teeth, whole group. Yep. Zoot, Suit Janice, uh, Floyd Pepper. Like they're such weird. Like and they're clearly like you know it's the most closest Henson could get to like drug culture in the Muppets. Yes. Where they're just like they're so stoned.
0: They're all high on weed or acid all the time. Like there's no question.
1: But I love the fact that, like, these are people who, like, on paper, like, I could never see them interacting with, like, Kermit and Fozzie. I love the fact that they have a weird connection. Like, even when they, like, connect over, like, the script and everything, it's just like, well, you know what? We love this froggy little dude. Let's help him out. And and that great line Dr. Teeth has, too, where it's just like, oh, we won't join you right now, but maybe when you're rich and famous, we'll exploit you for money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're right, exactly. Kermit's like, oh, okay. (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, no I agree animals animal of course is kind of like the standout one just because of some of the bits not not even in this movie but the caper you know wow chases Ralph and stuff like that it's just, animals great but yeah I love the whole group but that's the thing about the Muppets period like there's so many that I love for so many different reasons there's a few that I'm not crazy about uh, like I've no, never been a huge fan of Ralph or like scooter or anything like that like they're fine. But like, you know, Waldorf and Sam the Eagle and you know obviously Gonzo of course, but the entire electric mayhem and Rizzo the Rat and there's so many just great little side characters. Uh, I mean, yeah, Kermit, of course, is always, Kermit and Piggy are pretty much always the mains, and they're great characters. They just, I totally get why they're the main, but it's such a rich world. Like, even, like I said, yeah, I'm not crazy about Ralph, I'm not crazy, but even Ralph has some good, like, one-off lines real quick here and there.
1: I mean, he has a duet with Kermit in this movie, The whole right. Show yeah. Comes Along is one of the great songs in the movie, too. And it's so interesting, because you, when you realize, like, oh, wait, that's Jim having a duet with himself. Yeah, right, exactly. It feels, like, so natural.
0: Where like when they piss, pick up Piggy and she's hitchhiking and you know just oh, I'm Ralph the dog piano player and I oh never mind <laughs> like he just doesn't even bother to finish his story like it's just my
1: my favorite bit of Piggy is in this movie which is after like her big karate sequence where she gets her like Mel Brooks and all his cronies and stuff yep. and then she gets the call from her agent and then she just hangs up the phone and looks at Kermit and says um goodbye and then she leaves (laughs) (laughs) is like my favorite bit of piggy and it's such a great example of like a big thing that like makes all these characters work so well is like all these performers at this time had so honed their ability to like be these characters after like three seasons of the muppet show and even before that like specials and stuff like it feels like their own sensibilities are coming through their hands into like these puppets i think that's a big thing that's missing from sort of the modern Um, especially Disney-era stuff, is that it feels like, oh, we have to kind of protect the sanctity of these characters as opposed to letting, like, the new modern performers a lot of, like, add aspects to them. That's what's so great about, like, when you look at Gonzo, like, in the early Muppet Show stuff, he's, like, a very smaller, weaker, meeker character who talks like this, and then he became a lot more zany and interesting as it went along to, like, this point. Like, I, I think that's what makes those characters, like, flourish and makes them so memorable is that, like, these performers are allowed to like add aspects to them as they like keep practicing performing them in various different ways
0: yeah absolutely and you know the and and another thing too that i really love in this movie is sort of the ending credits where the scooters going around asking everybody what they thought of the movie and there's sort of like interactions with everybody and the best one is sam the eagle like what'd you think of the movie it was sick and weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking stupid. It's such a one-off funny line. There's something so endearing about this movie. Like even, like you said, I, I love it. My Me and my wife and my daughter watch it. My seven-year-old daughter watch it. And she just loved the whole thing. Sat there glued to it. When it's over, she's like, that was so cute. Oh, how cute. Like, can we watch more? It was like too late, but like, yeah, we'll watch more. Maybe tomorrow we'll watch the second one and the third one and just keep going. But yeah, it's just, it's such a unique, cool thing that these type of movies don't last a long time, you know, or you don't see them often to where they have such staying power and can be enjoyed by just every generation for the most part. Like my parents liked this movie. I like this movie. My kid likes this movie, you know, and God willing her kid will like this movie. It's, if she has one, um, but it's just movies that are this good and this genuine and this expertly crafted just don't come around too often. And this is just one of those just gems of cinema. I mean, still, there's and that's the thing too. You know, a lot of movies that you know are classics and stuff like that that people still like might have some problematic elements here and there to them. You know, oh well, that's the time they were made. This isn't like that. This is just, this is one that you don't have to, you know, explain to some you know younger kid while you're watching, like, oh, times were different then or anything like that. It, it's not in here. This is just an expertly written, crafted, fun road movie. It, it's just, I can't say enough about it.
1: Yeah, and, and I think a big aspect of that, I think, is, is also just, like, the way that these sort of Muppet characters interact with, like, all the various different humans. Like, we haven't mentioned him for some reason, but the sort of main human character we get throughout most of this is Charles Derning as uh, our villain Doc Hopper who's amazing uh, all the way from like the moment you see him in like the sort of uh, you know white southern gentleman get up to I love him the, mo- the moment that awful commercial starts for the Frog Legs restaurant he opens the mouth he's like hi I'm Doc Hopper <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's such a great example of like that guy could have like in, in so many other Muppet productions like what is so key is if you have a human character who stays throughout they have to believe like the actual central conflict that's going on with these characters and you believe that that dude is just like I need to get that fucking felt frog to advertise my goddamn restaurant or else I'm cooked so I need Austin Pendleton to help me out and follow that frog all around here and I think he, he does that so beautifully and I think that's what like any of these people do like even one of the other great cameos as we haven't mentioned, uh, Richard Pryor. I love the bit when he is trying to convince Gonzo to give him the balloons, where he's just like, here's an idea, how about you give her the whole bunch? And he does like a weird smile, like, eh? Why'd you do that? <laughs> like, it helps sell the fact that it's just like, oh, these people are sincerely believing that like these little things are real. And I think that translates to anyone else who's watching. We're just like, if those humans can believe if they're real, I can believe that even, I think that's what helped. Even when I was a little kid, I'm sure your daughter also had this where it's just like, Oh, these guys just like exist in normal reality. And that allows us to endear us to them further.
0: Right. Exactly. There, there was an, I don't think there was one question of like, how are they doing this? Or how who's doing in the voices or, or there was not one time. And, you know, every other thing we watch, she'll ask, how do they do that? Who's doing this? Who's play under the mask? You know, if we watch a superhero movie or something, she wants to know more about it. Not once with this. Not one time did she need any more information. She just went exactly with it. Like, yep, these are real characters. and You know, I didn't even think about it. But, yeah wow that's fucking wild because my kid is super inquisitive when it comes to movies and stuff but yeah this one she was just on board
1: yeah and like it goes all the way down to like the we haven't we'll, we'll start wrapping up because we have an old another movie to talk about but mm-hmm the finale of this movie is, like, one of the best endings for a movie in general. One of the great examples of, like, you know, making a movie kind of, like, let's get the whole gang together, finally get our shot to make this movie, and I just love that, like, it's all this build-up and, like, all the props and all the sets are being built and everything's put together, and then within, like, 30 seconds, it falls apart just massively, but it's fine, because they're just, like, well, we're here doing this still, and we make mistakes, but we can keep on going leading to that amazing shot where just, like, the rainbow comes in, and you get 250 puppets yeah it's one of like it, it's genuine like movie magic in a way that like that term gets used a lot but it's like this is genuine like a movie magic trick that you're able to like buy into this enough to where you see that giant shot and like all the, the rainbow like imagery and stuff like that and you're like yeah that that 100 there is no fakery to that <laughs> those puppets are actually there and it all feels so real Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, but yeah, I guess, Adam, any other final thoughts, stray things you want to mention about the Muppet movie before we continue?
0: Uh, Just this is one of those, you know, five-star, ten-star, A-plus movies that, I mean, I can't really think of one person that would watch this and be like, eh, it was all right. I mean, it's just, it's a perfect movie. It's beautiful, it's sweet, it's funnier than hell, and it's... Generally, just super engaging. I I just absolutely love this movie.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. That like it's perfect movie, so stellar. It feels like the sort of first big, massive like cinematic achievement for Henson and his company. And it's it's like I said, like does so much like get you invested in these characters. And if you know any other stuff, like uh, if you're a fucking dork like I am about like Jim Henson and his legacy, you can see so much of like these autobiographical elements that are in there. But at the same time, if you're still a kid, it still works even on that level. We're just like, this is a fun movie about a bunch of cute animals that are made of felt. that are like going around saying funny things and want to achieve their dream. That's a, it's a beautiful little like thing that works for, it's a real sort of like all ages movie, a true family film that the entire family can enjoy. And, you know, parents won't get sick of it or kids won't be bored by the adult jokes. Just all works beautifully together and even though as someone who like loves all sorts of Muppet stuff if you follow my letterbox, I like log so much like random Jim Henson Muppet related shit um this is still the pinnacle without a doubt and uh it might never get to that point again but at the same time I'm glad at least we have this that everybody can still watch it so many years down the line but now let's get into our alleged bad feature Labyrinth TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of the Muppets and Dark Crystal.
0: Ah! Where you go with a head like that? Hmm? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga.
1: the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure.
0: There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible and nothing is what it seems. The world of Labyrinth.
1: Uh, so, Labyrinth came out June twenty seventh, nineteen eighty six, and this one was directed by Jim Henson, and it was the last feature film Henson would direct, uh, as he would die in nineteen ninety. And uh, this movie was not very successful at the time that it came out; um, and wasn't critically loved that much. I think that that was a problem with like Henson had with this movie and the Dark Crystal before it. It was like these kind of like. Bit more like ambitious fantasy films that weren't as embraced by audiences as his Muppet work, and uh, you know he would go on to direct like a couple of specials and other stuff for the Muppets before he eventually passed away. Uh, but this is a movie that, despite not doing well at the time, uh, has gained a huge cult following. But uh, Adam, you did as a bad pick, so I'm going to allow you to take the floor and make your case as to why you're not necessarily a fan of Labyrinth.
0: All right. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Mm-hmm. pop in my peas pop in my peas Small
1: drink pe- your mint julep, you just like oh, your <laughs> you're
0: yeah. if i may declare <laughs> um <laughs> you know the thing is uh all right this is just again my opinion and if people don't like it I, it's fine it's my opinion it doesn't matter you don't have to like it all right so you know jennifer connelly I, i'll give her a break she's you know a young girl in her early teens and this and all that. But I mean, she, she's just so wooden for me. And I'm not particularly fond of the character either. I think she's just a, kind of a brat ass. I don't really care for the music. I know that's Travis, it's David Bowie, but I don't like the music in this. Um, David Bowie's fun. I'll give it that. Uh, I do like a lot of the puppet design and things like that. But it, it, over and all, it, the movie is just fucking boring man and like i said if i if i can't get behind a lead character that you're supposed to follow i mean even lead characters who are brats or snotty or whatever you know they, they those exist in movies and some of those are movies i like but coupled with the bad acting coupled with just the overall cheesiness of it all i, I just i it's just doesn't work for me these type of movies never rarely ever work for me these like young 80s young kid fantasy movies. Like I'm not even crazy about like the never ending story or, you know, dark crystal or this, or most of those, they just, they just, it's not a genre that I've ever really been hugely a fan of. And I couldn't really explain to you why it's just not for me. Um, I get why people like it so much. I completely understand. I mean, Dave Bowie is captivating. The puppets are great. I mean, the Ludo character alone is fucking amazing. Um, and they, they, it's, it's, eh, yeah, no,
1: no. I mean, I can sympathize in that, like, you mentioned the Dark Crystal, which I would not categorize as, like, young fantasy necessarily as much, because that's just, like, a whole different other, it's almost like an experimental film, basically, the Dark Crystal is. And I think I feel that way a bit more about, like, the Dark Crystal with, in terms of, like, the story lags a lot more. Because it feels like we're so focused on the craft we forget about sort of like the characters in the story. But I think I like Labyrinth a bit more because especially I think upon this watch I gained a bit more of an appreciation of just the fact that like at the same time that it is like a young kid fantasy movie of the 80s. This one is dealing with a lot more sort of like themes about like her being like at that cusp between childhood and full on like adulthood. And I think it's, like, wrestling a bit more, especially for Henson. It's focusing a lot more on, like, sort of, at the same time, they're, like, these little puppets or whatever. There's a whole, like, sexual awakening element of it that also has a completely different factor. I didn't realize until this watch where there was a point where um, they go through, like, before she actually goes into the labyrinth and there's a shot of, like, her room, Sarah's room, and you see all the different, like, oh, there's, like, a, an approximation of, like, the various different characters we're going to see later. And there's one thing that's, like, a clipboard where you see like a bunch of newspaper clippings that are out cut out of um, Sarah's mother, who is, I guess, an, like in what is revealed in those newspaper clippings, and you kind of see like bits and pieces of it there, is that she is an actress who ran off with another actor instead of her father, and that's why they're divorced and she's not in the picture. And the person in the photo who's with her is an actor who in the picture is played by David Bowie. So that adds a whole nother context to this of like oh, not only is she like having this weird sexual awakening thing to not just like a random Goblin King character, but this approximation of like basically what she would desire from her adulthood in terms of like the person that her mother ran off from like this uh, like suburban life that she hates with. And so there's this weird kind of like fascination that's going on there that um, I think adds another layer. I don't think it like makes this movie great necessarily, but adds something I didn't even realize before about like, oh, this is like, has a lot more interesting thematic depth than I think something like the Dark Crystal or any a lot of those like eighties fantasy kids movies would have where it's like this is really a movie about a young girl realizing like trapped between like her stuffed animals and this hot David Bowie dude who has his bulge out very prominently throughout the movie.
0: I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a little bit more depth to it than, you know, Dark Crystal or even Never Ending Story and stuff like that. And it also doesn't hurt. And of course she's having a sexual awakening with that fucking hog in between his legs in this movie.
1: Yep. Um, That's very prominent. yep.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's it's huge, which by the way, uh, it's potpourri. Me mean, Heather, Heather reminded me today, but we saw some interviewer, read an article with David Bowie where the bulge, he's like, I wish I could, you know, claim it as mine. He's like, but I right. actually stuffed potpourri down there because I was worried that, you know, after all the dancing and stuff that the puppeteers would get a whiff of something. Um, right. <laughs> but still, yeah. Um, I find myself not giving a shit within, like, 20 minutes. I, I still like the... Like I said, I like looking at the characters and stuff like that. But, I mean, even rewatching it for this show, it was a fucking chore, man. Now, I would have put this one as, like, one of the worst movies I've ever seen or one of the worst movies, you know, that we've even done for the show. Like, no way. It's just... This is just one of those movies that just never connected for me. And, you know, as I got gotten older and stuff like that, I... I I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I've tried a couple times. You know, there are a lot of people who like this. Like, my wife's not crazy about it, but she's a fan. And actually, her first, like, sort of, oh, my God, moment was when she saw this movie.
1: I mean, I, I heard that from a lot of people. And that was something that was weird where, like, I didn't realize that, obviously, when I was a little kid. And it's like, what are you talking about? Is that the case? And I look back at it when I was, like, in my teens. Like, oh, no, yeah. That's very clearly there. I was distracted by those fucking puppets. But, nope, that's, he, that, that Bolts deserves a co-star credit, basically, in this movie. That's
0: ridiculous. It's like he's wearing four athletic cups. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking crazy. And I know a lot of people talk about the songs in this movie and all that. I just feel like they're just oversynthesized dribble. Like none of them work for me. I'd rather take fucking Lamal's "Neverending Story" over any of these songs. It's just it. I don't know. I don't know. And I like David Bowie. I'm a David Bowie fan. I like David Bowie's music. But holy shit, do I hate the soundtrack to this movie?
1: The two songs I really like from this are probably "Magic Dance." I think just more because of like what's going on there. Obviously, it's really catchy. Um, and then I like "Underground," the opening song. Uh, but it's not my favorite Bowie thing overall. I mean, to be fair, there's only one song I loathe, and one scene I just completely, like, why is this even fucking here is the whole chilly down thing with those characters, the, like, the fireys. Awful. Awful characters, yeah. It's a really bad sequence that adds nothing <laughs> to this movie at all. It's like, obviously this is full of, like, a bunch of, like, vignettes for Alice in Wonderlandy. But even then, I'm just like, guys, get this the fuck out of here. <laughs> this, this is, like, so stupid. And
0: it looks terrible.
1: Cause it's like it's that's even like it's pre blue screen because it's like they're shot in like black velvet or whatever. Yeah, right. I exactly. think sometimes works. Uh, in other cases with like productions, though, but here rarely. it looks
0: terrible. Oh, it looks terrible. It looks so yeah. fucking bad. And they're annoying. The character design is okay. It's not even that great. It's just yeah. That that's one of the main scenes of this movie for me too, where I'm like. Oh fuck this movie! <laughs> I will say my <laughs> favorite side characters movie, other than Ludo, because like I said, I think Ludo is just an amazing creature. I mean, it's huge and it just it works so well. And I think it was like originally like 100 or 200 pounds or some shit like that. Yeah, which is crazy. But I love the worm. I do think the worm's cool as fuck. every time I see it, I'm like, why is he? Why has he got a little scarf on? He's, he's getting a little chilly. <laughs> I love my favorite
1: thing is that he's just like, why don't you come inside for tea? Yeah. And it's like. He's, she's like a full-grown person. And
0: like, hello. Did you say hello? I said hello. But close enough? Like, yeah. Little Cockney worm with a little scarf on. He's getting chilly. He's got business.
1: It's one of many bits there where you can see sort of a credit screamer Terry Jones's work coming through, like very Python-esque. In terms yes. Of like some of those like bits and pieces, which I know you're also not a huge fan of, sort of like British dry sense of humor in general as well.
0: Yeah, I've become more of a fan as as time goes on, especially because my wife likes it quite a bit. So I'm becoming more of a fan of it. I'm still not crazy about it. No, I've never been a huge Python fan. I have I, always been a big Eric Idle fan. I love Eric Idle. I think mm-hmm. he's absolutely hilarious.
1: But but in terms of like the sort of the the, the sillier British sensibilities here with like the various different characters we interact with, you're not necessarily big on like the I'm all I always tell the truth and I always lie, like those kind of guys. No, that's not see, big to
0: on me, Well, it works. In this sort of context, because like I said, I think the puppets are cool, and I think it works in this context because everything is weird. Because she's in this weird, like, dream realm, goblin, whatever the fuck. So it kind of works that they're all a little off. But, eh, did I laugh at any of it? No, God, no. Uh, except for the little worm guy, because I mean, what do you got a little scarf for?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, this is the biggest thing Adam's thinking of throughout the rest of the movie. She's like, how
0: do you get that scarf? Why does <laughs> he got it? What you, what you chili? <laughs> oh, he got chili. He's got to bring you a little scarf with him. Um, <laughs> who did it? A scarf that small. Ridiculous.
1: Right, 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 of course. Um, but, yeah, I, I want to go back to, like, we. you kind of, uh, you mentioned uh, your dislike of Connolly in this. I think what works for me for Connolly in this movie is that, like, she is, yeah, playing this character who is very much, like, a 15-year-old girl. She feels just like, oh, she's very, like, assholeish toward her parents and doesn't really treat the responsibilities of babysitting this kid seriously. But what I like is that with her character, despite the fact that she has it, I get a sense of her, like, actually maturing over the course of the movie, And I think that's what really works is in so many other cases where like they try and do that, it's very dicey, depending on like the the way the story goes and the performance for like these kind of fantasy movies of like, oh, this is like a coming of age movie about this kid growing up. Um, It still doesn't matter because I don't necessarily like the kid. Obviously, that's the case for you. But I like the fact that I believe necessarily her realizing like that whole element of, oh, this isn't fair. Like that's her whole complaint throughout like the first like third of the movie. And then her just accepting that at a certain point. But that's the way it is. And I have to keep going along this journey. It feels like it's her actually, through this very silly magical adventure, learning just about, like, this is what life is like. That, like, you have to go through these weird adventures, and sometimes you meet friends, sometimes you meet enemies, sometimes you meet people who you think might be alluring to you, but turn out to be manipulating you this whole time. And I like that journey that she goes on. I don't think Connolly is necessarily terrible. I wouldn't say she's, like, the best kid actor, but I believe her as, like, a teenage girl who's going through that kind of arc, which I, you know... We we have this debate all the time about like likability with characters necessarily. I can give her slack for that sort of like lack of likability where it's just like, I don't know, I was kind of an asshole at that age too. <laughs> no one understood me as I went off LARPing with my dog in a park, which is like the saddest thing. That immediately endears me to her because it's like, oh, you're out there LARPing with your dog in a park? That is so sad and the rain comes in. <laughs> Immediately, I'm just like, "Oh, this this girl has like no friends whatsoever." I just feel so much empathy for her as she finds uh, friends in the form of weird imaginary characters.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty sad, like for sure. Uh, so they're just coming up weird, of like a fucking Renaissance fair dress, talking yeah. um, goblins and mazes with her stupid dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's pretty fucked. Um, yeah, I mean, nah. It doesn't work shit for me at all. Like, I, yeah, she, obviously she is a fucking teenager in real life and blah, blah, blah. But so I believe that she's a teenager. I do believe that. Um, well, but you don't believe that
1: arc necessarily to her growing and well, there, maturing. There's,
0: growing there's, no, no, I don't. I, I mean, I think that's intended. I, I think that's the intention of the filmmakers and what they're trying to do. To me, there's just not enough strengthen the performance that carry it across. I feel like she's very bratty and immature, which obviously, again, 15-year-old kids, yeah, they're going to rebel and everything, but to me, it doesn't really change. Like, she's just kind of bratty and whiny the whole movie.
1: And I would argue by the time she gets to the end of this where it's just like she's not whining about like, you have no power over me. She's like, I, you have no power over me.
0: Yeah, well, Nancy did that in 1984 as a nightmare
1: on Elm Street and it worked better. Yeah, it's almost as if it can work again in another movie. Nope. Only one movie. <laughs> only one movie. And I only get one pass for that. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I I think, like, it, it it's helped, obviously, I think, by, like, her scenes with Bowie. Where Bowie is just, like, this weird, like, obviously, this kind of fits, like, his whole, like, pop star persona. Just being, I'm a weird, magical, enigmatic character who's coming in and trying to get you to, like, basically become my queen essentially like he has the initial facade of like oh i'm gonna kidnap your baby brother and then you're gonna like try and get him but throughout the entire thing he keeps coming back just like maybe you should just stop doing this question just embrace your fate which is me that's what you need to do just embrace who i am and i can see that allure coming off of Connolly throughout the whole movie at the same time where it's just like oh man this weird guy has kidnapped my brother i have to get my brother but also he looks like kind of like my dream man and this is weird and i'm feeling a lot of weird feelings i think i feel that like off the chemistry between the two of them as well and you said you liked bowie a bit more in this right yeah man bowie's fucking
0: really good in this i mean he's fucking captivating like i don't know if it's the bulge in the crotch or the paint on his eyes but you just want to watch this fucking guy and he's got that sweet ass motley crew hair
1: yeah, I think especially, like, when he's interacting, like, whether, like, the contrast between him interacting with Connolly and then when he's interacting with the puppets, like, in the Dance Magic dance number. At, like, the start of it, he's, like, so annoyed by what's going on. <laughs> or just, like, oh, you guys are, like, doing whatever, fine. Like, how about we all shut up and we sing my song? That's how we're going to do. Like, I love, that kind of shows off also that aspect of, like, what... Connolly is sort of allegedly tempted by is this guy who like feels like he's mature and mysterious and fascinating. But in his free time, he's hanging out with a bunch of fucking goblins who he's just like, Oh, I hate all of you. Now let's dance. Like that's his idea of maturity (laughs) is doing that. Like being a Lord, a King of goblins is like, you're all going to dance with me now. It's like, Oh, you're just a big kid at the same time. And I think that also kind of helps with that arc because it's her kind of realizing like, Oh no, this whole like fantasy facade thing is still infantilizing me at the same time. We would both be, like, grown uh, adult children together, and there wouldn't be actually any kind of growth or progression. You'd still try and keep me here with stuff like the uh, that whole sequence with, the, like, the weird bag lady who's just like, oh, yes, here's your toys, here's this, here's your Yeah, baby. I was going to
0: bring that up, actually. either uh, Heather was telling me, my wife, uh, that that part freaked her out as a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. And watching it, you know, that is still probably one of the most effective scenes of the movie. This creepy little bag lady who's, you know, basically a hoarder turning her into a hoarder. <laughs> like, it, it yeah, it's, it's crazy and it's creepy. And then the puppet for that is really fucking creepy and weird looking. So I would say that's probably the most effective part. But I, uh, <laughs> I'm so
1: bored. Yeah, I don't know. I don't find any of that, like, boring, because I think it has, like, that thematic resonance at the same time, where, like, I think that's a big thing is, like, obviously with Henson directing this one, this feels the closest to, like, a lot of his experimental shorts he would do in, like, the 60s, like, Timepiece and other stuff like that, where there's a lot of the weird surreal imagery, like, the whole M.C. Escher sequence of them, like, walking around and, like, Bowie, like, literally going over, like, that one edge onto, like, where she is on the platform and stuff like that. It feels the most kind of, like, weird and bizarre and experimental, even, like, the whole, like, as the world turns round sequence where, like, she's basically, like, drugged with this peach and then goes into, like, a weird eyes-wide-shut party that Bowie is at.
0: <laughs> he's at an eyes-wide-shut party with all those goblins.
1: I mean, that's what it is. It <laughs> looks a lot like that. They have, like, looking <laughs> masks and shit. Like, I was just waiting for her to say Fidelio. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna bag the bag lady. <laughs> Todd Fields playing piano in the synthesizer <laughs> in the yeah hell yeah <laughs> um, but I mean but that's the thing I think that adds another element where it's just like oh this is what an adult party looks like for Sarah just like look this is like oh we're all like having fun with masks and stuff but we're all adults here and we're all there's this weird sexual vibe but immediately she starts saying, like, this feels weird, this feels off, I'm getting the fuck out of here. She asserts herself by throwing that fucking chair into the very clear, like, <laughs> matted crystal ball thing <laughs> that's there. I think that's that's the stuff where I think it d- doesn't bore me necessarily, because it's Henson also just doing weird experimental shit with, like, what is, like, a fantasy movie from this era. Like, this feels far more experimental than, like, The, the NeverEnding Story and a lot of those other ones you mentioned that weren't from Henson. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Scintillating conversation. That's what people listen to the podcast for. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, no, hold on here. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me get out my dissertation. No, I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't escape me why people like it or why the, some of the things you're saying that you can sort of appreciate of it and all that. I totally understand. I absolutely get it. And I can see where you're coming from. And it's not even just because of Jennifer Connelly, I mean, or the, the music or and there's no one reason why I don't like this movie. It's several fucking reasons. It's just it, it's something that has never really engaged me on any sort of level. And I don't know if it's because I was never a 15 year old girl. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, some a lot of the problems are universal as far as like rebelling against your parents and feeling lost and all that.
1: And I was never that, too, and I feel, you know, I like this movie, so it's not necessarily a requirement for it.
0: Well, no, I I don't think it is, but I'm saying maybe that's part of the reason. I don't know. I, 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 you know, seeing this as a little boy, it's hard to identify as a little girl, you know, if you're not
1: that way. Also saw this as a little boy, and I didn't feel that either. Look, man. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Oh, oof. Burned. Gotcha. Arrow through
0: the chest. Busted. No, No, it's just – But like I said, I'm just – I guess I'm just trying to come up with a reason why maybe it never connected for me. I really don't know because there's a lot in this movie that should work. But again, the genre as a whole—it just never worked for me. I mean, it's not that I'm not into fantasy movies. Maybe I'm not into fantasy movies as much as I thought I was. Like, there's some that I really like, but for the most part, it's not a genre I go to. So maybe it's just I'm not a fan of fantasy, I guess.
1: Well, and and, I mean, and you were known at the time because there were a lot of people who weren't a fan of this movie. Yeah, this is definitely one of those that sort
0: of caught on later for sure.
1: Right, yeah. It was not, you know, critically praised at the time and didn't have a huge box office take. And I think that a lot of people even said that, like, that kind of was, like, the start of the beginning of the end for Henson, just sort of, like, his career and everything, where the the, the lack of success for this kind of, like, winded him, like Brian Henson kind of said as much. And I guess I, I can kind of get that because there's, there's certain elements, too, where, like, someone we haven't mentioned who was a producer on this movie is George Lucas. I can see some of the early rumblings of, say, like, the prequel trilogy, in here with certain characters. And I think even like the whole, like the part where the movie really loses me besides like the fiery guys or whatever, once they get into like that goblin city at the end and it's like, not necessarily with like the big door guy who I love. I think that's like a great example where it's just like the doors close in. That's this metallic robot guy comes out. But after that, we're just like goblin antics in the city. Like, it just feels like, okay, we're just kind of going through gags. There's no danger here, necessarily. This feels like it's just, like, a weird Muppet thing <laughs> that's going on um, with these less, you know, Muppety characters. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I still think there's, like, some of these thematic elements that are interesting. Or even you mentioned, like, the, the look of these characters. We should mention Brian Froud, who uh, designed uh-huh. the a lot of the puppet stuff for this and the Dark Crystal. And his son, Toby, uh, is little Toby in the movie. Um, and we'll later go on to, like get into his father's footsteps and do some, like, puppetry, you know, design and stuff like that. The puppets all are really amazing. Like, even you mentioned Ludo, who's, like, this big, giant thing. Even Hoggle, who I would see is my least favorite of these guys, I feel way more annoyed by Hoggle <laughs> and his dumb journey that I don't really have that much investment in. <laughs> it's just like, you keep turning coat all the time, dude. Go fuck yourself.
0: Agreed with Hoggle. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And well, you know
0: he... what? That's another thing, too. Honestly, really, and I don't mean to cut you off. The voice acting in this is not that great. For the puppets. Like, it's not that good. Hoggle, I don't like Hoggle's voice actor. The doorknobs. I do like the fox with the eye patch. Um, whatever the fuck his name is. I forget. Um, oh,
1: Sardinimus. Yeah.
0: Sardinimus. But most of the voice acting is just not very good to me. It feels almost like they're improv and they don't know what to say.
1: Well, I think this is something that happened a lot with, like, you know, as the Muppets would go along, and, like, you have, like, a Frank Oz who does a bit of puppeteering here, but later on, he wouldn't be there for puppeteering, so he'd dub over the voice later after the pup- the puppeteers already performed it. You do get a lot of that, I think, in this, where you have these voice actors, most of which did not do the puppeteering. And I think there is a bit of that disconnect. I think Hoggle in particular, just because, while he's a technical Marvel, there's also just the weird thing of, like, it's this, like, little person in a weird like suit mask thing that's like this weird animatronic like it looks great but at the same time brian henson's voice for that i agree isn't stellar i think ludo's the only one once again where it works because there's not a lot of voice acting there
0: right yeah he basically only says like three or four words he says his name he says sarah and he yells pretty much but yeah that that's probably another thing like i said that's probably another thing that really sort of took the movie down a notch for me too is it does sound like now that you mentioned, it, I never even thought of that, but it does sound like all overdubbed.
1: Right. And then it even doesn't just quite work with like the way the performer is doing it. Like I would love to hear the scratch track basically with these actual puppeteers doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I can agree with that necessarily. Um, But, but still I, I would, I want to ask before, like we start getting to final thoughts and stuff. Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier, like the worm is your favorite uh, yeah. Like the sort of side characters and stuff. Is there any other one you would want to shout out of like these other different puppet creatures?
0: Well, like I said, I think Ludo is just an achievement. He's fucking great looking. Um, uh, I like a lot of the goblins, especially the scene where she's first in her room and like, oh, I wish. And they're like, yes, yes. And there's that big dumb
1: one with the horns. Right. And the one who's just like, I wish that the goblins would come and take her away. What's so complicated about this? Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, I mean, there's a lot of cool character designs. And you know what? You're dead ass on about the George Lucas influence here. Um, and those creatures, the, the root, the thing we don't like with those fucking creatures.
1: Yeah, the fiery guys, yeah.
0: They're all salacious crumb.
1: Right, yeah.
0: I mean, and I, and I just...
1: oh. And it feels like maybe Lucas was on set just there like, you know, I could maybe make this work with like a guy with like rabbit ears and stuff. I think that could work, although maybe a Binx of some sort. <laughs>
0: Waving his hand at a random grip. You'll bring me a Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> yes mr lucas i'm your assistant that's what i yeah, do yeah <laughs> sure man you will do it you'll
1: get me a diet coke
0: <laughs> but, um... <laughs> um i mean
1: i i would say in terms of, like the other side people i love the look of uh, the wise man who is the guy that has like the little bird on his head
0: yeah that guy's great i forgot about that guy he's awesome
1: right uh who's puppeteered by frank Oz, like that and also the bird hat it's just like it's so interesting being your hat <laughs> This whole time, uh, like, but, but, yeah, I mean, there's them. I like the the um the knockers as well. I think they're like funny characters. And I like the the puppeteering that's going on with them. Yeah, I would say like there isn't necessarily a bad design in the bunch. Though I would agree that I don't think all the characters necessarily are that consistent compared to or as endearing as any other like Henson production necessarily. Um, but we've been talking a lot about labyrinth. So Adam, any quick final thoughts here about labyrinth that aren't just like I didn't like it. I get it i understand why people like it
0: and i think a lot of it has to do with sort of the david bowie of it all and things like that and the high fantasy and i know this is one that really like young girls really go to and obviously boys too with thomas um i understand sort of the wonderment of youth and all that that why people would be connected to this. I Maybe I just was a bitter eight-year-old, you know, smoking my palm malls Like, oh, this is... <laughs> Put on bridge on River Quad. Turn this shit off.
1: <laughs> I want you of this madness. I want that madness.
0: Give me some Kubrick. What is this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a word of Herzog picture. Um, no, I just it just never connected for me. And and in a way, I feel like I'm sort of missing out sometimes because I know how much people like this and how much people talk about it. But then, you know, when I really sit back and think about it, when people talk about this movie, they talk about basically David Bowie's bulge. There's not a lot more discussion when it comes to this movie among, you know, the general populace It's David Bowie. It's the, the dance, the magic dance scene. It's the, you know, tell me about the babe and all that stuff.
1: But there's really I'm, sorry, a I'm sorry, I'm of... sorry. What, what babe, exactly? Oh, God. You mean the babe with the power, right? Oh, God. The power of hoodoo voodoo, right? You remind me of that babe, right? No, I was talking about the little pig. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. That idiot. Idiot. That'll do. Gotcha.
0: okay. <laughs> hey, you, you run a movie podcast? Morad. <laughs> um, Fraud, but... stamp. <laughs> but, no, I get why. cinema's dead to me put out my palm all on my leg (laughs) I think David Bowie's what keeps this movie around and I I mean I get it he's great in it he's David Bowie but to me this doesn't really offer anything so you know again I guess my final statement is if you guys like this movie good for you I don't
1: Well, yeah, um, I like this movie. I've been mostly defending it just because, like, Adam is over here as my point counterpoint. Uh, But I still have, like, enough issues with it where where it's not, like, my favorite Henson thing. I think, honestly, as a director, Henson was sort of, like, at his weakest, necessarily. I think he worked so much better as, like, like a writer, producer, performer kind of element of it. Because when he kind of was in the director's chair, I think in the case of, like, The Dark Crystal or even The Great Muppet Keeper, both movies I like they still feel kind of like we're focusing a bit too much on like the technical craft. And this movie, I think kind of suffers for that as well a bit. But at the same time, I think there's enough thematic resonance stuff that like makes it, especially when I was a kid, I just like, like, Oh, this is like fun puppets and whatever. And it's fantasy. And there's this weird man here who apparently has a bulge that I'm not going to notice for like another <laughs> decade or so. But now it feels just like a lot more interesting as like I've grown older. It's like, Oh, okay. This story about being on that cusp of like growing up and realizing that like, well, I could go for like this version of what being a grown up is, but that's not really that grown up at the same time. And kind of coming to terms with a, a lesson that I think Henson like, tried to portray in a lot of his work of just, like, well, you do have to put away childish things to a certain degree, but you don't have to, like, put them away forever. They can still exist somehow in your mind, and they can still, like, sort of uh, proliferate when you want them to, and there there still is, like, a charm to having that element in in your life while at the same time progressing forward as a person. And I think for all that, you know, I think that's what makes this uh, endear a bit more than just David Bowie's bulge, though that's a key component. I don't think anyone's arguing that. No, you can't
0: argue it. And it's one of those things, once you've seen it, you will never unsee it. You cannot watch really? this movie and not check it out.
1: You can't. No. No. <laughs> you really can't. Especially when there's so many sequences of just, like, puppets at that, like, height level. At crotch level. Near hundred <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but Like, the book where Hog was, was, like, begging to him, just like, no, please, Master. And just like, you're, you're, literally right in front of you. <laughs> yep, full-on dick.
0: Right there. <laughs> well, not full-on dick. That'd be a completely different movie. But so no, yeah. yeah, it's right there. Uh, there's a
1: version of that that's probably out there on the internet for you to peruse. But that's yeah, it's like, here the here. Ba-
0: like the babyrinth or some bullshit.
1: <laughs> the labyrinth.
0: Yes! That's it. <laughs> that's absolutely it.
1: <laughs> All right, on that note, let's get into our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double redo, double, double redo. Redo, double, redo, double, redo, double,
0: redo, double, double, redo, double, double, double,
1: -double redo, redo. That works. So the double redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week in which we talk about a good and a bad feature that uh, we that is related to the topic in question. So we say, like, hey, here's something we'd recommend related to the topic, and here's something we would uh, recommend you see steer clear of um, instead of watching. And so for Henson, uh, I'm going first here, and I am starting off with – this is breaking a bit of protocol for me. This isn't the first time someone's recommended something that isn't technically a movie on the show because Adam has recommended previously uh, – it was for Regina King. You recommended Watchmen. So uh, I'm going to break a bit of that – protocol here and recommend a tv show but it kind of fits in the same parameters because it is a one season tv show it wasn't a miniseries unfortunately this was planned to be a larger bigger series that just never progressed forward i'm recommending the netflix series the dark crystal age of resistance which i kind of mentioned earlier the dark crystal which henson did um like after muppet caper but before labyrinth is not my favorite of his works. I love and respect a lot of like the craft that's going on there and creating a whole world and doing it without humans, just puppets and everything. I think there's a lot of technical craft stuff that's fascinating, but it's kind of dull. That's the one that I would describe as far more dull of a movie necessarily. But what I love about The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, which came out in 2019 on Netflix and is sort of a prequel that takes place uh, several decades before, the original Dark Crystal movie came out um, is uh, it takes a lot of the elements of the world because this is all also all puppets, no humans involved, um, all directed by Louis Leterrier and has a massive cast as well in here uh, that includes like Taron Egerton, Anya Taylor-Joy, Natalie Emmanuel, um, and then like Simon Pegg and... Uh, Jason Isaacs. When you get into the Skeksis uh, voice actors, um, basically what what this does, I think, is it takes a lot of the elements of that original movie, and it expands them in not just like a sort of story form, but also really gets you to embrace like the the characters and the actual plot beats that are going on here. This is basically about, like, how in the Dark Crystal universe, the Skeksis, who are these, like, big bird creatures, have been ruling over uh, this, you know, fantasy world for a while. And this is the point where, basically, one of the Gelfling, who are, like, the smaller creatures, discovers that the Skeksis have, like, sinister intent. And he starts to question them as leaders. And it becomes a story about, as it mentions, like, an Age of Resistance uprising, and I think it's a really fascinating sort of, like, fantasy war drama that's building up with these, like, puppet characters. And I think the characters are much more engrossing. The uh, performances are a lot better. I think this is a better example of sort of, like, puppeteering and, like, overdubbing with celebrity voice cast. It works pretty well. Like, I would say my favorite in particular. Uh, Simon Pegg plays the Chamberlain, who, if you've seen the original movie, is a skeptic who goes, like, mmm, and has, like, the weird, like, red coat on and stuff like that. <laughs> and he embraces, like, sort of that slimy... Sort of like manipulating element like amongst the Skeksis and the Gelfling so well and it's like looks gorgeous. It has like so many great sort of world building elements. It's a bummer that like obviously it got canceled because it was too fucking expensive for like this like very niche sort of subject matter. Um, but at the same time, there is, like, so much fascination and craft that's going on, while at the same time I got invested in, like, all these Gelfling characters and the sort of interplay between the Skexies and a lot of this other stuff, I think it's, like, a fascinating show that, like, the first season, while it does obviously, like, leave open stuff to a uh, season two that'll never happen, um, at the same time, like, it has enough of a story to where, by the end, I mostly at least felt like it was a satisfying, like, end to the season and, like, at least a lot of the bigger arcs are wrapped up while it's a shame that like it can't progress forward. But I think it takes what that sort of original movie did and improves upon it in a way that I think Henson would have enjoyed if he would lived to see it, necessarily. And I think it's one of the better sort of post-Henson's death productions that that production company has done in quite a while. And I would also recommend The uh, Calling of the Crystal, or The Crystal is Calling, I, I forget which one, but it's the making of documentary that's on Netflix. It's like right after you watch the, the series, watch that documentary. It is fascinating to see just how much like this massive the mo- like the most expensive like puppet production I think uh, in recent memory. It's just like how much work went into in like designing every single element the sets and the characters and everything. It's it's a v- fascinating production and I would recommend it especially if you like elements of the Dark Crystal but wish to kind of improved some of the story and uh character elements, this series I think is great for you. And then briefly, my bad is A movie, and some may say, like, oh, this feels like you're kind of punching down Thomas to, like, (laughs) hate on a movie that's aimed at six-year-olds, basically. But uh, my bad feature is The Adventures of Elmo in Grouchland, which is the second of the uh, Sesame Street movies. And uh, I would say that uh, for that one, while it is obviously aimed at, like, a much younger audience, at the same time, like in comparison to the other movie, which put a pin in, because I think someone else here will be talking about the other Sesame Street movie in a moment, Um, this one I feel talks down to kids a lot more. And it feels like it's also this this weird thing where it's like it's literally it's Elmo going into like Oscar the Grouch's trash can and going to Grouchland, which is full of like grouchy characters, obviously. And there's like Mandy Patinkin plays like a human villain, and that one it feels so much more like they are talking down to their audience because there's a lot more of just sort of like oh kids aren't entertained by this, so we're gonna have the characters like interact with them, or even like at a certain point there is a lot more like '90s cynical jokes in here. Like Big Bird tries to sing the ABCs and all the Grouch like oh that's so get us out of here this is so terrible and it's like i don't know it feels like a weirdly cynical sesame street movie which is a bummer because Sesame Street, at its core, is like a fun, like earnest thing about just like all these all these various kind of creatures teaching kids and also having their fun little adventures. And I think you can do that in, as we'll talk about, I think in a bit, uh, in cinematic form. But I don't think Elmo and Grouchland does a very good job of that. And I think um, just because a movie is aimed at little kids doesn't mean that like you can't respect that audience. And I feel like it's kind of talking down to them a lot more than it is actually meeting them on their level.
0: All right, so I only seen like the first two or three episodes of the Dark Crystal show, but I will say, without liking the movie, I was pretty engaged by the show. I I forget why I didn't finish it, probably just like personal stuff going on or whatever. but I mean, I had
1: a similar thing where like I only watched the first couple of episodes when it originally came out and I just actually went through it like in the last week.
0: So that's something I might want to go back to. Um, But I do remember really like, I remember thinking it looked fucking amazing and uh, I did like a lot of the acting and voice actors a lot. So that's something I might want to go back to for sure. And then Elmo Grouchland, I have of course seen uh, (laughs) being a father who, to a daughter who was obsessed with Elmo. Uh, who had her Elmo doll from the time she was about a year old to just within the past six months put it away. Like slept with it every night. It went every went everywhere with her, all that shit. So, of course, watch it. And, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's treating its audience, which is obviously children, but treating them like they're dumb. And uh, that's not something that you're used to getting out of a Sesame Street uh, show or movie. But... Uh, yeah, it feels like they're just sort of like you, bright colors, loud noises, blue, and it just doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't at all. Um, in fact, even to the point where my kid, being an Elmo fan, really like didn't latch onto it as much as I would have expected. Um, so yeah, it's it's not very good at all. Uh, but to sort of go with mine. Um, and talk about a good Sesame Street movie, if not a, a great Sesame Street movie, I have Follow That Bird. Um, Follow That Bird is just another one of those that I grew up with. I loved it. I cried at it as a little kid every time I saw it, especially there's two scenes. One snuffy boy bird, <laughs> and then with Big Bird's blue and in the circus and he's singing. I into bald. Bald. And It's one of those things where I even I watch it now. If I don't cry, I'm going to get misty-eyed. It's going to happen. I think Follow That Bird really takes the Sesame Street sort of formula and really perfectly translates it to film. It's smart. It's funny. It's cute. It's so sweet. And it treats its audience with respect the kids and stuff. And it does try to cheat little lessons here and there, and it really works. And it's, again, really well puppeteered. It looks good. It's funny. The songs are cute. I, I think Follow That Bird is not necessarily an underrated, but kind of a criminally underseen and under-talked about movie. Like, nobody talks about Follow That Bird. And it's kind of wild to me, because I think it's pretty damn great. And then uh, for my bad, real briefly, it was the alternate choice, uh, The Happy Time Murders. It's just a fucking shit show of a film. The whole gimmick is, is that it's you know puppets, you know doing crazy cum shots and swearing and all this you know sex and all this stuff. And it, they're not even good looking puppets. They're it's bland designs. Uh, the voice acting is not very good. It's just it's really fucking stupid and bland. When your whole gimmick is puppets being filthy and dirty and stuff, which could work i mean cranky anchors worked i'm not a cranky anchors fan but it worked people liked it
1: meet the feebles stuff like that. meet
0: the feebles exactly it's been done and has worked so but if that's what you're going to sort of base your whole film around then at least come up with good designs at least they all look like bland ass puppets you would design in like ventriloquist class or puppeteering class. It's a but, lot
1: of what uh, the Henson Company calls "whatnot puppets," who are like background puppets. You would, yeah,
0: say. a thousand percent. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. It, it, and, and and any level. I mean, Melissa McCarthy's trying. I'll give her that. She's trying, but just barely. There's. I. I don't think I laughed once at this movie. Um, if I did, I would not even call it a laugh. Maybe a chuckle. Uh, but yeah, it's it's terrible. I remember even when the previews came out, I was like. This looks like it's going to be really bad. And uh, hey, I was right. It's pretty fucking bad.
1: Yeah, uh, I have seen both of yours. I recently rewatched Follow That Bird for the first time since I was probably, like I don't know, three or four or whatever when I first saw it as a little kid in the prep before we uh, were going to do this episode, and... I agree with you. Like, obviously, the the Bluebird uh, song has been kind of, like, what is pointed to a lot. It's kind of, like, the sad moment of that movie. But even before that, like, with the Snuffleupagus thing or even the scene where, like, Big Bird is actually, like, leaving to go with a family. Like, that feels like it touches, like, on a primal thing that you felt as a kid whenever, like, if you moved away from your home or, like, a friend of yours moved away. And that weird first time you get that sad emotion, just like, I'm not going to see this person again, potentially. And especially when it's Big Bird, the most innocent, cute, adorable, giant bird puppet you've ever seen. You feel all that emotion swelling up when you add it. Uh, but at the same time, there's still a lot of other funny stuff like uh, Dave Thomas and Joe Flattery as the the villains. Um, who run the Evil Carnival, are so funny, like dim-witted, like perfect kind of like Sesame Street villains where they're kind of nasty, but at the same time they're very funny while <laughs> all this is going on, and a lot of great cameos from people like Chevy Chase, John Candy, a lot of fun like people popping up in there as well. And also it looks very good, like the when you actually see Sesame Street in cinematic form, it looks like, oh, wow, this feels like a real street as much as it can be compared to, like, the sets you would see on the show. It feels like, oh, this is, like, they actually expanded to make it look like a, a little town, which, like, w- works really well for it. Um, and then Happy Time Murders is, like, one of the most disappointing films of, like, the last 20 years for me. Because, <laughs> like, that movie, I followed its production a lot because I was a Henson dork. I would read Muppet Wiki. And I would hear about, like, all oh, the production, like, it was going to star Cameron Diaz at a certain point, And then it moved on to, like, I think Elizabeth Banks. And then she moved on to, like, a smaller role and like, Katherine Heigl even. And any of those choices, I think, would have been much better than, like, McCarthy, who I genuinely like as a comedic persona in theory. But the problem is, like, from what I've heard, it's kind of, like, on the down low, a lot of, like, her and her husband, Ben Falcone, who, like, makes all the bad Melissa McCarthy movies, they kind of took over that movie. When she signed on, and I think that shows, very sadly, it feels like it's kind of like, oh, let's just really embrace the gimmick of just like, oh, the puppets are going to come and all this other stuff, and it's going to be, like, wacky and raunchy and silly, and it's like, this should have just been, like, a fun, like, maybe slightly harder-edged Roger Rabbit with puppets, but instead this is just, like, it's abysmally unfunny. And just like a real waste of talented performers. Like during the credits, they have like the, oh, here's the behind the scenes of how we made this and all the work that went into it. And that just makes me feel so much sadder that all this time and effort that goes like an average Muppet movie is spent on this. This like nothing burger of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's fucking terrible. But uh, let's repeat our titles for everybody out there uh, in case you missed them. Uh, My good pick was the one season, 10 episode a series on Netflix, The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. And my bad pick was uh, the film The Adventures of Elmo in Grouchland.
0: And my good pick was Follow That Bird, and my bad pick was The Happy Time Murders.
1: Yes, and uh, we'll be wrapping up the show here, but stay tuned to the very end uh, as we're going to be picking our titles for next week. Uh, So stay tuned for that. But we want to thank some people first, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Lally for the artwork for our show. I'll follow him at night of water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water. Uh, on various socials for all his great artworks. And also thanks to our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash dedvpod where for just $1 a month, you all get to listen to bonus podcasts we put out every month. And also you get to uh, vote in polls Uh, for individual topics or movies that we cover. And this week that we're putting this uh, episode out, you'll be able to pick up between uh, Adam's two bad picks for our upcoming 2022 wrap-up episode. That'll be the first episode of 2023, uh, where we'll be going back and looking at movies that came out in the year of 2022. And uh, Adam, they have to choose between The King's Daughter and Moonfall, right? Those are your choices? Those
0: are the choices. I'm not looking forward to watching either, but I'm definitely sort of interested in both.
1: I mean, I'll say this much. I have seen Moonfall, and there's a lot to talk about in Moonfall. Uh, It's very, very bizarrely bad. Um, But at the same time, I am fascinated by The King's Daughter. If you all don't know, this is a movie that was supposed to come out, like, in 2015. And it's been in, like, weird production delays for a while. And it's apparently about, like... Pierce Brosnan p- plays uh, King Louis the Fifteenth. He has to kidnap, like, a mermaid to try and, like, steal its life force or something, and his daughter has to save the mermaid. <laughs> it's like, what?
0: <laughs> that's some dumb shit. I don't even know.
1: Yeah, that's... I'm, I'm very curious to actually see that. But, you know, whichever, Moonfall or that, uh, whatever the patrons choose, we will cover. And uh, if you, like I said, contribute $1 a month, you get to vote in a poll like that and help us choose which of those bad picks we'll be covering on that episode. But uh, for more of us, find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pod. And uh, you can also send emails to us uh, for larger feedback over at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd satin out the Who's Tommy. And I also do some writing on com and at film-cred.com.
0: And you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwantz, S C H W A N D T S O N, or on Instagram at Atom or Atom. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A
1: M. Yes, and uh, for more of us in terms of our audio antics, uh, subscribe or follow us over on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society on that huge feed, you know, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? Plenty of fun ones. Uh, And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for several, several episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't uh, contribute to the Patreon, we get it. Money can be tight sometimes. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around on your socials. It gets us more visibility out there. That gives us the rainbow connection to the lovers, the dreamers, and you out there.
0: And especially after that endorsement. I mean, how can you not do it? If you don't do it, you, you're
1: awful people. Yeah, Kermit's crying. Just like, why didn't everybody yeah. share their show? Yeah. Kermit, loyal listener. Kermit's dead now. You guys did that. Yeah. <laughs> I changed voices one too many times. (laughs) You
0: motherfuckers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well on that note, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week's episode. As we do at the end of every episode, Adam and I each, uh, you know, have switch up on the quality of good or bad. And we have two movies of that specific quality for the topic in question. And so we assign numbers between one and 10 for them. And the other person will pick a number between one and 10 and be like, okay, I'm going to pick number six. And the other person will say, okay, that's closest to my choice at number eight, which is blank movie. So that ends up getting us our good and our bad feature. But there is the Godfather rule, which Adam still has a veto in his back pocket that he can use. Just one single veto that he has to use before our next anniversary in May. He's been holding on to it. If he hears one of my two bad choices and he's like, you know what? I don't want to cover that movie. He can say, Actually, I'll take the cannoli, and thus we have to go with whatever other choice is there. And we'll see if that happens uh, for the bad choices I have for our next topic, which will be Sigourney Weaver. We've been wanting to do this episode for a while. We're big Sigourney Weaver fans. We love her as an actress. And we're doing this in honor of uh, Adam's most anticipated movie of all time, Avatar The Way of Water.
0: Which, hey, if it doesn't make like $2 billion, it's not going to break even. So,
1: (laughs) fuck that movie. (laughs) And you were the one ticket James Cameron was hoping for. That's been mentioned in all these interviews he's been doing. Like, oh, you know, come on. I'm so big successful, but please, Adam, please see my movie. Please. Please? Look,
0: Titanic was huge. I'm king of the world. I love underwater filming. Now I've changed the game. But this fucking asshole, Adam Thomas in Michigan. (laughs) Like, I'm after his eight
1: bucks.
0: (laughs) Well, you're not going to get it, Jim. (laughs) You fuck.
1: (laughs) But at the same time, Adam, you're quite happy, at least have the excuse to cover Sigourney Weaver as a topic.
0: Oh yeah, she's kick-ass, dude. She's she's a fucking icon. I love Sigourney Weaver. Anytime she shows up in anything, it's like, oh, oh yeah, Sigourney Weaver.
1: Yep, always a great presence. And yep. uh, you, I actually won't be doing any picking this week because our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod chose between your two good picks in a poll uh, last month, and uh, they end up picking between uh, your choices of Working Girl and the ultimate winner of Galaxy Quest, which, hell yeah! Love Hell Galaxy yeah, Quest. Galaxy Quest is
0: super it. fun. Yeah, and she's great in it. She's fucking great in it. It's one of her best comedic performances.
1: For sure, for sure. Uh, but now, Adam, mm-hmm. it's time for you to do my choices for bad picks, which I will just say up front, this one was a bit more rot for me in terms of just, like, quite the bad pick that would be, like, at least interesting to talk about with a Weaver, because I don't think she's done too many, like, bad movies, and a lot of them aren't necessarily as interesting as others, but we'll see. What you end up with is you pick a number between 1 and 10 for my two choices.
0: Oh, since we're doing this because of Avatar 2, let's just go with number 2.
1: Okay. At number 1, um, I have a movie that she is definitely in, but more of a supporting player. But uh, this movie is incredibly, fascinatingly bad. For an interesting filmmaker who had a lot of potential, um, I'll just uh, say this in the way that the meme described it.
0: uh no i i want to talk about Chappie. there's a lot of things to Chappie that i want to talk about uh no i will not be taking the call all
1: right uh well the other side of things over at number eight i had a movie that i'd heard about got like some festival buzz and then died a quick death that has like her and robert de niro and killian murphy in it uh called red lights that's apparently about like paranormal investigators
0: yeah i haven't seen that either but yeah I, i remember that okay
1: Everything I heard was like, oh, there's a live interesting buzz around, and then it disappeared. And those who saw it were like,
0: "Eh, it was a movie? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 But yeah, so. Galaxy
0: uh, Quest and Chappie. Oh, boy. All
1: right. That's Galaxy Quest and Chappie, (laughs) all (laughs) right.
0: That
1: we'll be talking about next time, everybody. But on that note, the episode's over. And just remember podcasting's like a movie. Write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending. We've done just what we set out to do.
0: Warband.